You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Um, I'm here uh, to uh, chair a session devoted to an inevitable topic at events focused on Conor Cruz O'Brien, that is to say, writers and politics. It is, of course, the name of a collection of essays uh, um, put together from mainly from his journalistic uh, writings, books, reviews, essays, etc. But we have three papers uh, which will uh, address this general area and some of um, O'Brien's specific interests. Now, I want to make one apology, or, or at least one explanation. Um, David Coat was to be attending this conference and delivering a paper largely about his time shared with Conor Cruz O'Brien in New York, but he has un- is unable to travel for health reasons, uh, and I've been shown his paper, which we're not going to read into the, into the performance, but uh, he does ask a question which we might like to think about as we listen to the three contributions this morning. He raises the question which confronted him as soon as he joined Connor's department in New York. Is this man primarily interested in politics or in literature? And uh, it is, I think, something that one's answer to may well fluctuate from one side to the other, uh, depending on, of course, exactly what you're reading and responding to. What qualifications have I to uh, chair this session? Um, Well, I could invoke my Aunt Winnie, who in the mid-1920s decided it was time to learn Irish, and she learned her Irish from uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien's mother in Rathmines. Uh, I could um, invoke um, my mother, who did some typing for, uh, for him when he was um, contributing to the magazine uh, Atlantis, which Seamus Dean and Derek Mahan and I uh, edited at the end of the 60s into the 70s. And you can imagine that anything which tried to uh, um, bridge uh, the positions <coughs> of Conor Cruz O'Brien as they were developing and the position of Seamus Dean at the same time required some, some delicacy. Um, finally, I could invoke in a very minor, uh, trivial way the fact that I was at his daughter Kate's 21st birthday party uh, all, those, all those years ago. So there are some links justifying my position here. Now, as I say, we have three papers uh, and three speakers. Uh, just let me get my notes. <coughs> Our first speaker will be Marion Kelly, who is completing a, a PhD here in Trinity on Conor Cruz O'Brien, a rebel with a cause. And one of her um, topics will be the relationship already touched upon of um, Cruz O'Brien's relationship with, with uh, Sean O'Fraylock. The second speaker is Max McGuinness, who is um, also completing doctoral research in Columbia, New York, a city, of course, of uh, extraordinary importance for Conor Cruz O'Brien, 
and uh, his topic is whatever happened to Connors, Cruz, O'Brien's Camus? Uh, and then finally, David Reef, also of New York, will give us some thoughts on Connor Cruz O'Brien and the aporias of collective memory. Uh, I remind the speakers that we have a maximum of 20 minutes per speaker. Uh, I would like to be able to ring a bell or tinkle a glass with pencil. There are no such things, I'm afraid. So I will make a tooting sound um, in tribute to my years in South London um, uh, to indicate if you're beginning to stray over your allotted time. We will be keen on you know, stopping in time to keep the lunch appointment at one, uh, but we will have time for discussion after the three presenters have presented. So, first of all, Mary. Thank you very much. Welcome, President, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great honor today uh, to be able to meet so many people who both met O'Brien, are related to O'Brien, and have engaged with his work. I'm going to start with a, a thought. Uh, recently, uh, about two weeks ago, the first day I met Bridget and Frank, uh, I was walking down Fitzwilliam Square afterwards. I was reminded of an anecdote told to me on a number of occasions, actually, but most memorably by the late Greek Dermot Healy. I had been exploring the possibility at that stage, the day I was talking to him, of doing research into the influence of existentialism on Aidan Higgins, another wonderful writer who just passed away recently. Having the opportunity to get Dermot's views on the matter, I asked him if he had been personally influenced by the writers associated with the movement. His response was, had I heard about Behan's encounter with Sartre? No, I said I had not. He proceeded apace. One day, Behan was walking down Rue Saint-Germain when he spotted Sartre inside a cafe. Venturing over, he walked up behind a venerable figure, placed his hand on his shoulder and said, Would you give us an old song there, Sartre? <laughs> his anecdote ended there, but the laughter did. What I found more amusing than the story itself was what seemed to me, at least, implicit in it. The Irishman arriving to lighten up affairs, the French philosophes, it would seem, taking themselves a bit too seriously. What was coming to mind on Fitzwilliam Square for the first time was how apt an illustration this was for O'Brien's understanding of Eden as the stage Irishman. Someone who was, according to O'Brien, hotly resented by the offstage Irishman as a combination of traitor and ambulant forgery, self-framed to corroborate the vision of the foreigner and to answer his need. In O'Brien's words, he baits his respectable fellow countrymen by playing on their secret fears that deep down this is how they really are. How they really were and the situation of the writer in Ireland and elsewhere who attempted to express such concerns is something that troubled O'Brien deeply. In his introduction to writers and politics, when he claims that, I'm going to show you here because it's the longest quote in my paper. Sorry. I think Christopher Hitchens called this the dog and pony show, that is PowerPoint. Okay. So again, in his introduction to writers and politics, when he claims that outsiders and some insiders have discerned in the Irish mind, as in the Polish and the Spanish, a tendency to anarchism, to rebellion for rebellion's sake. Where it exists
exists, and it does among intellectuals, this tendency derives, I believe, from the necessities of individual intellectual survival in communities where correct thinking is assumed to be the province of a specialized caste. If we take an intellectual to be a person who prefers to try to do his thinking for himself, even badly, rather than delegated to specialists trained to discharge this function with considerable subtlety, then we see that the intellectual in a priest-led community must develop a strengthened means of defending himself. He acquires in the process special capabilities and special limitations different from those affecting intellectuals in Protestant agnostic countries. There are a few things that stand out in that statement, but for the purposes of this paper, I will focus on the contention that intellectuals whose formative environment is Catholic differ in some tangible way from those in Protestant agnostic countries. This separation of powers, so to speak, was arguably influenced by the influence of French writing on his thought. He had, from an early age, engaged with continental writing. His interest was intensified by the complexity of his relationship with his cousin, Owen Sheehy Skeffington. He writes in his memoirs of his early attempts at trying to find a way to a more agreeable <coughs> kind of Catholicism than the Irish kind, through the possibly more enlightened writings of Catholics in other countries. This search and the emotional compulsion behind it will continue to inform his thought right through his life. His interest originated in a desire to understand the emotional, moral, and intellectual predicament of the intellectual at that period in time. In Maria Cross, he draws out what he means by this. The emotional and moral style of our suffering has been so formed by our Christian history that the distinction between feeling and language is not absolute. The language has formed the feelings to such an extent that it can convey from deep levels of one mind to those of others whole systems of emotions which might astonish their conscious hopes. Terms such as patterns of feeling and whole systems of emotion betray a concerted attempt to systematically understand the condition of the Catholic writer at that period. This kind of writing betrays a philosophical sensibility, sensitive to the ambivalence of language as it emerges in political, religious, and social contexts. Sean O'Fillon was charting similar territory when he lamented the absence of a deep-cutting, critical objectivity in Irish letters. The Irish literary movement had focused its criticism on what was other, what was foreign, as opposed to turning its back on itself. This, according to O'Fillon, had made it a movement of feeling rather than of thought. O'Brien and O'Fillon were central figures in 20th century Irish literary history, in terms of their contribution to what might be seen as an emotional and cultural understanding of the predicament of the Irish Catholic intellectual at that period. Interestingly, despite his having referenced others' use of the term, the Irish mind, O'Brien himself preferred to think of it as the Irish predicament. This comes to light in his review in the New Statesman of Vivian Mercier's book, The Irish Comic Tradition, when he explains that Mercier has gone astray because he is beguiled with the idea that there is such a thing as the Irish mind that has its own peculiar quirks, not shared even by other Europeans. O'Brien suggests that instead of there being a distinct Irish mind, there has been at least since the 17th century an Irish predicament which has influenced the development of both Irish humour and literature. Ireland Usher, in his study, Journey, Truth, Thread, 
a study of Kierkegaard, Heidegger and Sartre, went so far as to say that his book is a study of three men, two of whom I believe to be undervalued in England, where their type of thought is very repugnant to the national temper. This may be indicative of why they were attracted to a number of writers in Ireland, as they certainly were at that period. It appears that this generation's attempt to make it new morphed into a desire to make it authentic. And that was partly due to the seductions of an existentialist glamour that was gaining momentum in Irish literary circles. This was represented both at a structural level and through a mood that pervaded their writing. Idealism had given way to realism in letters, and this realism was characterized by a search for critical truth. This was a natural outcome of the civil war and the resulting emotional complexities of a state founded in violence. Mike Foster has acknowledged the complexity of the period following the civil war, a period when writing often became a struggle to come to terms with sides taken, a society left questioning, did we do that? How did it happen? How did we end up here? Existentialism offered a way of engaging with this mood, which wasn't sentimental, and appealed to writers searching for something solid to hold on to. Existentialism as a mood took moods seriously. Frank Fallon has already highlighted this in his book, saying existentialism made a considerable impact in post-war years. O'Brien was engaging with the zeitgeist of his era when he decided to write a book on Camus in 1970. It's hard, to influence, it's hard to overestimate the influence of Sartre and Camus in European circles of this period. Between the combined influence of their better-known works and their magazine, Les Temps Modernes, they provided something of a looking glass for Irish writers of that period. One of the many downsides of the Free State's attempt to establish legitimacy was an attempt to generate collective amnesia. In a tragic reversal, it set out to establish Excuse me, in a tragic comic reversal, it set out to establish a republic that had very little to do with republicanism, something which had emerged out of a dissenting tradition and which formed itself in a wider conversation with Europe. British and Irish literary magazines and periodicals of the period, such as X, The Bell, The Dublin Magazine, and The Lace Curtain, reflected the existentialist mood. There appears to have been a dialectical tension between two contradictory impulses in Irish writing at this period, one towards more engaged writing and the other towards retreat into isolation. This tension was increased by the fact that the war had widened the social and cultural distance between the small, self-consciously intellectual elite and those committed to the protection of the nascent republic. O'Brien in an attempt O'Brien in an essay on how Nietzsche was being recast by the gentle Nietzscheans argued that all writing that we know, even the writing of Samuel Beckett, is a form of social communication, a cryptic signal <coughs> going on in society and history. And this signal is not going along a narrow channel, as the old new criticism would perhaps have preferred. An identification with Europe which predated Irish colonisation gave a sense of continuity to a certain element of thinking, which felt deeply the loss of continuity explicit in our loss of the Irish language, a way of transcending the more recent divisions through an affinity with a philosophy that found its bearing in early Greek thought. This fusion of modernist crisis and anti-imperial feeling resulted in a gravitation towards continental philosophies <coughs> over the more empirical analytic variety than popular in Britain. 
the complementarity of writers who are identified as existentialists and the Irish Catholic imagination, the literary nature of existentialist philosophy, Ireland's post-colonial condition, and the presence on the continent of a number of emigre intellectuals all combined to make writing that was loosely classed as existentialist attractive. There was nothing superficial in O'Brien's commitment to French literature and thought. From an early age, the writers he admired served as a sounding board for the issues that took hold of his imagination. These issues revolved around the nature of politics and personal commitment, the relationship between religion and nationalism, the role of the intellectual, post-colonialism and imperialism, to take just a few examples. He was, as Christopher Hitchens noted, a truly engaged writer. Tony Judd, in his book, The Burden of Responsibility, provides a compelling account of the way the lives of Leon Brown, Albert Camus, and Raymond Darin shed light on the intersection of intellectual life and politics of that period. How through their writings, one can examine pivotal issues in the history of contemporary French society. Conor Cruz O'Brien, whose writings have been arguably as contentious in terms of Irish politics, provide us with a similar opportunity to examine how an Irish intellectual living in mid-20th century Ireland negotiated the political, intellectual and moral landscape of his time. His writing sheds light on the ways in which continental writing informed Irish intellectual life <coughs> at that period. The stark divides in French cultural and intellectual life, divides dating back to 1789 and expressed in its literature, were a source of fascination for O'Brien. The ways in which he appropriated existentialism, for example, according to his specific ideological, critical, and political needs, highlight the complex way in which an Irish intellectual living in Ireland at that period tri negotiated a tricky emotional and political terrain. Kavanagh's remark in 1952 sets this atmosphere in context. We came to the wake that had been going on uproariously for the last 30 years. And at the moment, we are trying to get the family to remove the corpse. In the course of 1916, the Gaelic language, the inferiority complex, so that the house may be free for the son to bring in a wife. This was an apt expression of the frustration of a generation of post-Civil War writers who had grown tired of the empty rhetoric of the Irish Irelanders and the deadening effect of the alliance between the church and state for spiritual, moral, and political control of the people. O'Brien was actively writing to sound an alarm that would awaken consciences dulled by the consensus of the new state. Jerry J. Russell laments the fact that O'Brien never explains how his philosophy developed. This observation is belied by the fact that very often this influence speaks for itself, and no thorough reading of O'Brien can leave anyone in doubt of the thinkers and writers he was engaged with. This engagement took the form of a sustained, lifelong attempt to understand certain themes that dominated his career in writing. These themes directed his gaze, and it settled on writers whose political, philosophical, and intellectual concerns most clearly resonated with his own. Writers such as Burke, Camus, and Yeats appealed to a sensibility attuned to the ambivalence of historical forces, particularly where religion and nationalism were involved. That said, it is important to locate the philosophers who drove his narrative reordering of history, and while doing so, to identify what kind of philosophy accommodates such a literary fashioning of historical events and figures. It's no surprise that a man who repeatedly confounded his admirers would be attracted to thinkers 
who fitted uncomfortably into any category of thought. Or a Kim Camus, excuse me, sorry, in O'Brien's ongoing dialogue with both Burke and Camus, we find a great degree of investment, as if in exposing their contradictions, he comes closer to identifying his own. The zeal with which O'Brien pursues this objective reveals his sense of the importance of exploding any categorical fictions being flouted, whether under the guise of nationalism or colonialism. O'Brien's career was marked by an attempt to come to terms with this complex relationship between religion and nationalism, the latter which he considered much more a complex of emotions than a body of doctrine. His critical writings chart the ambivalence and ambiguity at the heart of the Church's relationship with nationalism over the successive nationalist phases from the 1798 rebellion onwards. In his person, the stirrings of a disaffected intelligentsia influenced by continental writing of the period were beginning to be felt. It was part of a wider European post-war phenomenon when a new engagement with both the self and the idea of the state was required. Irish intellectuals, disillusioned by the conservative parochial nationalism of the majority, had their own impetus to rethink the self and statehood. With civil war divisions still raw, they turned again towards European writing, allowing for an engagement with ideas that transcended local politics. It's hardly a wonder that intellectuals like O'Brien and O'Fallon looked to intellectuals on the continent, representing as they did a world where intellectuals were taken seriously. Brian Fallon has noted that the public position and prestige claimed by writers such as Gide, Sarge and Camus was both a source of inspiration and a source of envy to the Dublin intelligentsia, who were only too well aware that their opinions would never reach such a wide public or carry so much weight with the ordinary reader. The fight for more critical intellectual writing was something that had been long in germination. Fallon argues that many of O'Fallon's public editorial stances in the Bell could hardly have been formulated without the example of the engagé French intellectual and by no means the Catholic variety alone. The difficulty in interpreting influence is exacerbated by the similarities between modernism and existentialism. Both movements were largely anti-bourgeois and anti-rational, with the writer elevated as alienated visionary. Existentialism, however, expressed its themes and structures sympathetic to the Catholic imagination. Cruz O'Brien, in his book Maria Cross, analyzed the imaginative worlds revealed in the writings of a number of Catholic writers, wondering if there was not an imaginative pattern which is peculiarly receptive of Catholicism. After concluding that the most common feature of all the patterns was a sense of exile, he observed that the place of exile is not just a historical period, it is also a mental atmosphere, what we may provisionally call the rational element in society. To conclude, I want to stress that it's important to view O'Brien as a contemporary. His writing, deeply informed as it was by a dialogue that spans centuries of literary, political, and cultural life, has much to say to us today. To read his work is to encounter him comparing himself to Tolstoy's Prince Andre on the fields of Austerlitz as he travels along in an open-top armoured car in the Congo, quoting from murdering the cathedral during the New York sessions at the UN, or identifying with the protagonist of David Karp's novel one, set in an Orwellian vein, 
The novel in question is set in the remote future, and scientists have studied the elements in human character which can lead to subversion, dissension, rebellion, and war. Needless to say, after much effort, the scientists in question fail to eradicate the individuality of the protagonist. In Tikataga and back, he services his knowledge of Proust to give us a more nuanced picture of the murky international politics as represented by key figures in the Congo. Over and over again, we encounter O'Brien merging literature into politics to great effect. He ruthlessly interrogates Camus' novels in order to reveal their political secrets. There is something prophetic in O'Brien's fascination with Camus' contradictions. It's as if it, unconsciously he's dealing himself with the fault lines in his own thought. This instinct is given full reign in his appreciation of the fall. A book where O'Brien is convinced that Camus is beginning to confront the hopeless contradictions in which his political pronouncements were entangled. Aside from reviews of books by Sergeant de Beauvoir and his book on Camus, his work was permeated by the concerns they had given expression to in their respective literature. O'Brien's personal views on engaged writing can be seen clearly in his review of France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. While admiring his engaged sensibility, he concludes that Fanon, while being right on the plane of generalities, was wrong on the grounds of personal responsibility. This concern with personal responsibility was a marked feature of O'Brien's thought. His engagement with particular writers, such as Burke and Camus, whose respective thought and political experiences reflected a crisis of responsibility, provided a mirror for his own personal and intellectual dilemma. This drama is enhanced when one takes into account both writers' overarching concern with liberty and justice. In these writers, O'Brien found the parable of an archetypal dilemma which faces an intellectual who moralizes himself into silence, and he was fascinated. O'Brien's judgment on Camus may have been stringent, but it wasn't final. O'Brien's Camus was redeemed in the fall, writing on the protagonist, he observes. With this character, Camus seems to grow apart from the left-wing intellectuals and the aspirations they once shared. The universals which infused his language are set aside for what O'Brien describes as a more conservative, more organic view of life. Whatever way one interprets his attraction to a writer like Camus, one thing that seems beyond doubt is that his engagement with French writing at that period represented a way of coming to terms with his own predicament as an Irish intellectual. When later he joined the UK Unionist Party, he referred to his actions as involving an existential metamorphosis. <laughs> this perhaps wasn't the first of such, and the way he expresses it is revealing. Thank you. <laughs>
to Europe to follow her paper with one focused very closely on Cruz O'Brien's longest piece of, of criticism devoted to, to French culture, and that is uh, the question of whatever happened to Colin Cruz O'Brien's career. So I introduce uh, Max McGuinness, great pleasure, and we look forward to hearing him. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, I hope you're all brothers and sisters. Today I'm going to ask the question whatever happened to Connor Cruz O'Brien's Camus, and um, I, I intend to answer it. <laughs> uh, so this, this book was published in 1970, simply called Camus, just after Cruz O'Brien had been elected to Dole Aaron. Uh, and it is his, not just his most sustained work of criticism. Uh, about French literature, it is his uh, single uh, most sustained work of criticism about a uh, single imaginative author. And the book, which runs through just over 100 pages, blends biographical detail about Camus, uh, who had died in a car crash in 1960, with close readings of his three major literary works, The Stranger, The Plague, and The Fall. Uh, O'Brien's essential argument is that the three novels Camus published during his lifetime collectively evade the issue of French colonialism in Algeria. And while O'Brien changed his mind about many subjects over the, courses of, uh, the course of his career, he never retracted the radical anti-colonialist argument of his book on Camus, which defends the revolutionary violence of the Algerian National Liberation Front. So what I want to do here is to offer an explanation for why O'Brien stuck to a position that, on the face of it, seems at odds with some of his later political commitments. Camus uh, was a working-class pied-noir, that is to say, the descendant of European settlers in Algeria, his mother uh, being not of French but of Spanish extraction. And like many working-class European uh, Algerians, Camus was drawn towards left-wing politics during the 1930s even briefly becoming a member of the French Communist Party's Algerian affiliate. And like Marx himself, the French communists were often ambivalent about the colonial question, both for tactical and theoretical reasons. But Camus' own views on the French role in Algeria were guided less by the party politics of the Third Republic uh, and Marx's doctrine than by an idealistic conception of what he called, in a 1937 lecture, uh, quote, the Mediterranean genius that supposedly united Europeans and Arabs in his home country. And that rather picturesque vision of inter-ethnic harmony in France's largest colony did not impress Conor Cruz O'Brien at all. For Arabs and Europeans were, in fact, deeply divided in Algeria. Moreover, those fault lines run to the heart of Camus' own fiction, where the anonymity of the Arab population and tension between the Europeans and Arabs belie the rosy picture of Mediterranean Brotherhood uh, that the author had painted in his lecture. O'Brien thus begins his indictment by describing Camus as a left-wing colonist who was in denial about the reality of colonial rule and whose, quote, fantasy of Mediterranean culture served to legitimize France's possession of Algeria, unquote. Though in The Stranger, Camus' first novel published in 1942, an altercation on a beach, as you probably know, concludes with the murder of an unnamed Arab 
by the European narrator Merceau. And O'Brien deems Merceau's subsequent death sentence implausible in light of the colonial system. Uh, this is the uh, first quotation on the uh, handout that I distributed. Uh, he writes that French justice in Algeria would almost certainly not have condemned a European to death for shooting an Arab who had drawn a knife on him and who had shortly before stabbed another European. By suggesting that the court is impartial between Arab and Frenchman, the stranger implicitly denies the colonial reality and sustains the colonial fiction. And O'Brien further argues that the racial tension pervading the stranger contradicts Camus' charming vision of Mediterranean culture, which he expressed just a few years previously. In this book, the Arabs are shapeless alien and shapeless alien presence. Prior to the killing, Merceau relates that his victim and the other Arab men on the beach, uh, uh, quote, this is the second quotation, were staring at us silently in the way they have, as if we were blocks of stone or dead trees. Clearly, there is, is a division here that goes beyond mere personal animosity. And as Brian goes on to remark, uh, quote, the tiny phrase, à leur manière, is eloquent in its laconic way, for it includes the colonial they, the pronoun which needs no antecedent. And Arabs become completely invisible in Camus' second novel, The Plague, published in 1947, which turns the fictionalized story of an outbreak of the bubonic plague in Oran, Algeria's second largest city, into an allegory for resistance and collaboration during the German occupation of France. There are no Arab characters at all, named or unnamed, and this in a city with a majority Arab population. O'Brien and indeed other interpreters view this absence as a way of simplifying the allegory that allows Camus to maintain his focus on the struggle between the Europeans and the Nazi occupiers represented by the plague. But as O'Brien notes, it sits uneasily with the novel's insistence on the importance of truth telling. And there is an unintended irony, given that the French had in effect been occupying Algeria themselves for over a century. O'Brien thus compares colonialism itself to the plague, concluding that Camus' novel had a powerful, albeit inadvertent, prophetic dimension. This is the third quotation. Eight years after the publication of La Peste, writes O'Brien, the rats came up to die in the cities of Algeria. To apply another of Camus' metaphors, the Algerian insurrection was the eruption of the boils and pus which had been working inwardly in the society. Now, this passage has been interpreted by Bill in his essay, The Mystery of the Clarity of Conor Cruz O'Brien, as equating the Arab population with uh, the rats, and hence portraying the Algerian insurrection uh, as being itself a plague. O'Brien's labor support for Ulster Unionism uh, and Israel, uh, which both have colonial origins, would thus be prefigured by this passage, which would resolve the tension between the O'Brien of the 1960s and the O'Brien uh, of um, the 80s and 90s. Uh, but a footnote in O'Brien's book uh, makes it clear that he is in fact referring to the rats of colonialism. For O'Brien, the French presence in Algeria was indeed a plague that had infected the entire society. And the insurrection that began in 1954 was the inevitable consequence of that collective sickness. 
And in Camus' later work, it becomes clear that the fantasy of Mediterranean culture he had celebrated in the late 1930s has dissipated. His 1954 short story, Lut, and a bigger title meaning both uh, the guest and the host, explicitly addresses the unraveling political situation in Algeria. The European schoolteacher is here charged with bringing an Arab criminal to prison, a task he reluctantly accepts before finally letting the prisoner go his own way, only to return to his classroom where he finds a death threat scrawled on his blackboard. The story concludes, quote, in this vast country which he had loved so much, he was alone, unquote. And that dismal coda expresses Camus' own sense of isolation during the final decade of his life, when he found himself struggling to adapt his own idealistic moralism to the political realities of the Cold War. First came his famous quarrel with his old frenemy, Jean-Paul Sartre, prompted by Camus' extended philosophical essay, <coughs> Rebel, in 1951, which signaled the author's repudiation of Marxism and shift towards an anti-communist political position. By contrast, Sartre and O'Brien himself were, uh, as it's sometimes said, anti-anti-communists, arguing that uh, the ideology of anti-communism was less about opposition to the crimes of Soviet Russia than it was about support for the United States and its Western allies, of which France. <coughs> then came the Algerian War, officially beginning in November 1954, and Camus opposed both Algerian independence and the repression carried out by the French authorities, which naturally satisfied no one, where Sartre supported the Revolutionary War of the Algerian FLN. And finally came the twin crises of autumn 1956, the Hungarian Revolution and the Anglo-French-Israeli conspiracy to take back the Suez Canal from the Egyptians, who were providing major support to the Algerian rebels. Camus backed the Hungarian rebels, as did Sartre. By contrast, Camus had little to say about the Suez fiasco, and what he did say suggests he supported it. And all this was extremely personal for Camus, a European Algerian, whose mother still lived in Algeria. And when heckled by an FLN supporter about the war, just after he had received the Nobel Prize in mm -hmm. Stockholm in December 1957, Camus said, and I quote, this is the uh, fourth quotation, at this moment, bombs are being thrown in the trams of Algiers. My mother could end up in one of those trams. If that is justice, I prefer my mother. Uh, Camus, but it was originally reported to have said something slightly different, concluding, I believe in justice, but I will defend my mother before justice. Uh, a much more ambivalent statement. And he subsequently sought to correct that misquotation. Um, nevertheless, his ironic use of the word justice in Stockholm echoes his novel, uh, The Fall, published the previous year in 1956, where a French lawyer, Jean-Baptiste Clamence, who describes himself as a penitent judge, embarks on a bitter monologue about his own moral failings, which includes several caustic comments about how he has lost all faith in the notion of justice itself. And unlike the plague, there is no clear moral message in the fall. No taker, people say, in America, which is probably what makes it his most interesting book. Uh, and it is the portrait of a conscience in turmoil that offers little hope of redemption. That also seems an apt characterization of Camus' fractured loyalties in the mid-1950s. According to O'Brien, Camus did, in fact, ultimately emerge from that state of personal and political limbo by putting his mother first. 
And that judgment perhaps places too much weight on a single impromptu and indeed misquoted remark uh, that O'Brien relies on the uh, uh, intensely ambivalent misquotation. Nevertheless, O'Brien's charge that Camus, uh, quote, came by 1958 to support everything that was fundamental in the French government's position, unquote, is accurate. Bearing out that assessment is Camus' final statement on the question, an essay published in late 1958 that places most of the blame on the FLN, the Algerian rebels, entirely fails to mention the violence perpetrated by the European Algerians and proposes a Franco-Algerian federation on French terms that would have been acceptable to neither the FLN nor the European Algerians. <coughs> As for the war, that can only continue, the article suggests, until the Algerians are prepared to compromise. And despite having delivered a thorough demystification of Camus' writings and his stance on Algeria, O'Brien concludes his book with a rather generous account of his subject's personal quandary and literary contribution. This is the fifth quotation. We must recognize, says O'Brien, that it was to Camus, not to Sartre, that the choice was presented in a personal and agonizing form. Uh, that Sartre's choice even if it was the right one, came relatively easily, whereas Camus' choice, wrong as we may think it politically, issued out of the depths of his life history. Politically, Camus and his tribe, the Europeans of Algeria, were casualties of the post-war period. Imaginatively, Camus both flinched from the realities of his position as a Frenchman of Algeria, and also explored, with increasing subtlety and honesty, the nature and consequences of his flinching. Uh, the personal, in other words, must yield to the political here. But all the colour and drama is on the side of the personal. Camus' failure to come to terms with the conflict between his principles and his heritage is precisely what makes him a fascinating, rather tragic figure. Sartre, by contrast, might have been a greater thinker and a more cogent political analyst, but Camus was the greater artist, precisely because his art comes from a place of self-doubt and conflict. And that is surely why O'Brien wrote a book about Camus and not about his fellow anti-anti-communist Jean-Paul Sartre. So this book was published in 1970, two years before the State of Ireland. Uh, and it comes at a turning point in O'Brien's career. It is his last great statement of Cold War era left-wing internationalism. During the rest of the 1970s, his political concerns, largely shaped by the Troubles and his experiences as a government minister, went in a rather different direction. And the subsequent commentary on Camus uh, thus tends to ask a form of the question, where did it all go wrong? And I admit this is partly echoed in my own title. Such is the attitude of post-colonial critics, uh, including Declan Kybert, Tom Paulin and Edward Said, who have all written in detail about this book and praised O'Brien's analysis, though Said thinks he didn't quite go far enough in excoriating Camus as a political stooge. They then all lament his subsequent political transformation, and in Kybert's case, explicitly assume this included a reappraisal of Camus himself. Uh, Camus, or, uh, Kybert thus writes in his Inventing Ireland, this is the sixth quotation on the back of the sheet, 
Uh, after the outbreak of renewed violence in Northern Ireland, Cruz O'Brien revised his view of the Camus Sartre debate and concluded that Camus had been right. Um, the problem is, he never did conclude that Camus had been right. And uh, this, by the way, uh, this inaccuracy has already been noted by the Camus scholar uh, John Foley in a, a paper on the same theme. Uh, indeed, Kyber gives no reference for this claim. O'Brien uh, did return to the subject of Camus on two occasions. Firstly, in the 1986 review for the New York Review of Books of a book of essays by the godfather of neoconservatism, Norman Hodderetz, uh, author of such uh, imperishable intellectual contributions as My Negro Problem and Ours. Uh, Hodderetz had attacked O'Brien's book on Camus as a travesty, offered, quote, in the name of art, but actually in the service of, that phrase again, his anti-anti-communist political passions. As for Camus himself, in Poderitz's view, the guilt and self-recrimination of the fall are in fact all about his failure to unequivocally embrace the cause of the American empire. O'Brien obviously has a bit of fun with this in his review where he writes, this is the seventh quotation, what a pity the novelist did not have a neoconservative father confessor at his side to get his penance right for him and see his books got rewritten. Uh, and O'Brien goes on to refer to Camus' painfully conflicting feelings about the Algerian war, but he certainly doesn't announce he has taken Camus' side. And a decade later, in 1995, in the New Republic, O'Brien published another review of Camus' incomplete, posthumously published autobiographical novel, The First Man. Uh, and in this article, O'Brien reiterates his earlier view of the Suez debacle, uh, his word, uh, and characterizes Camus as, quote, an ardent supporter of the view that Nasser was the root of all Algerian evil, unquote. Clearly, this is not an endorsement. He then returns to the legendary quotation about justice and my mother, again, is quoting Camus, alas, of which he remarks, uh, quote, this is the eighth uh, quotation, this statement scandalized the politically correct of the time, who saw in it a betrayal of progressive universalism, uh, and it completed the breach between Camus and the left-wing intellectuals, his <coughs> former comrades. Now here we see a shift. The old Cruz O'Brien would never have used the phrase politically correct, which has a complicated history, but by the 1990s it invariably signals reactionary disapproval. Um, and that phrase suggests O'Brien is no longer too impressed by Jean-Paul Sartre. But this sentence otherwise is a neutral description of what actually happened that reprises a comment O'Brien made towards the end of his book, uh, his Camus book, about the fall. This is the ninth quotation. Uh, quote, essentially Camus is beginning to take the side of his own tribe against the abstract entities. He is heeding the call which reached him most deeply, thus taking an ironic distance from those universals which had hitherto dominated his language. And in the next sentence of the New Republic article, O'Brien delivers a mordant gloss on Camus' mother talk. Uh, and yet the truth was more complicated. Camus had chosen his mother, but he had not made the same choice as she did. Camus' mother chose to remain in Algeria, knowing nothing of metropolitan France. Camus, though he thought and felt and wrote about Algeria, did all that in France, where he preferred to live. Clearly, O'Brien in 1995 
a year before he joined the UK Unionist Party, has not changed his mind about Camus' attitude towards Algeria. Indeed, if anything, he thinks rather less of Camus' personal moral torment than he had done in 1970. So, what's going on? Uh, well, I think it hinges on the phrase, Camus is beginning to take the side of his own tribe. That, for O'Brien, is the ultimate political combat. It may be fine for literature, but it is deadly in politics. And O'Brien himself did the exact opposite in the States of Ireland, where he used a similar language about his own reassessment of Irish nationalism. If you give in to your own personal and national atavism, you have lost the argument. And O'Brien never wavered on that view. Indeed, he probably took it too far. Hence, UK Unionists and his positions on Israel and even South Africa, all of which can be traced back to his initial repudiation of the myths of his own tribe, Irish Catholics, which took on, as he saw it, grotesque and terrifying form in the shape of the provisional IRA. And that is why nothing ever happened to Conor Cruz O'Brien's Thank Silvers of the New York Review of Books, with whom Cruz O'Brien was close, I certainly would not claim any deeper acquaintance and certainly not claim any expertise. It occurs to me when I listened to both papers and read some of the others of my, uh, in his obituary, my friend Jeffrey Wheatcroft will speak later, wrote of uh, Cruz O'Brien's bewilderingly, bewilderingly various careers, and I think from what people have been saying and what I was reading when I was trying to figure out if I could say a couple of things. Uh, you could say his bewilderingly various views as well, it seems to me. Um, I'm, uh, what I, what I, I, I really, I did mean this as a coda and as a, um, just a comment on perhaps the contradictions of Cruz O'Brien's views of historical memory and and what and also of, of what into what the role of intellectuals artists etc uh, what those roles were and, and and where perhaps they in my view at least do contradict uh, are contradictory so 
Um, when I met, I, one of the times I did meet Cruz O'Brien, he told the story at uh, Robert Silver's dinner table of a negotiation with uh, Protestant paramilitaries, a back-channel negotiation, and with uh, the IRA. And he said, at several points, they had gotten, he and other negotiators, terribly close to some kind of breakthrough when one side or the other would remember one of those songs, as he put it. Uh, you know, whether that song is The Rising of the Moon or The Sash My Father Wore, he didn't specify, but uh, one of those songs. And <clears throat> it seems to me that that is exactly what uh, the positions he took explicitly about national mythologies, which I believe to be uh, another word for collective memory and remembrance, because I don't think, I've written a whole book about this, obviously, that memory, <clears throat> there is such a thing as collective memory. To me, it's a metaphor for the way the present takes bits of the past that suit it to justify itself, to, to warrant whatever is being done or whatever the agenda of the present moment is. <clears throat> so here's O'Brien, here's O'Brien, excuse me, deflating nationalist myths, speaking of the corrosive effects of mythologies, of Irish mythologies of the past on the Irish present, <clears throat> speaking out against tribal self-righteousness, um, scorning ideas such as, as one of the two speakers talked about, about uh, the Irish mind, etc., etc. So here's the anti-tribalism. But to what extent is that anti-tribalism consistent with uh, and denunciation of romanticism in particular? Remember the phrase that he says at some point: <clears throat> Irish um, republicanism has been suffused with romanticism, which in pol in politics tends in the direction of fascism. So that's that's the view. But how does it how does it uh, jibe or is it in fact contradicted, as to some extent I think it is, by Cruz O'Brien's view of the writing of history as fundamentally an art rather than a science. That is to say, the historian as artist the historian as the person who um, uh, he contrasts, uh, there's a very good article by Dermot Whalen on this, <coughs> um, the, the social science, if you will, in very Thomas, version of history as, quote, a sedative leading to the resignations of agnosticism. Personally, I don't find anything wrong with that, but that's perhaps a conversation for another day. Uh, as opposed to the kind of history he favored, <clears throat> which he describes as, he says, he writes, history as art is a stimulant, enriching and embittering contemporary conflict. Now, surely, in that sense, he's, he wants it both ways. He's a critic of romanticism, of mythology, but he's created a mythology of the writer, the artist, the historian as artist, every bit as romantic 
as whatever he denounces in the nationalist myth. And that, it seems to me, is the fundamental problem. Um, Gary Fitzgerald, I believe, in an interview about Cruz O'Brien, said that uh, Cruz O'Brien had been fundamentally a literary critic. At least that was one of the things he said. And I think, to put it, uh, I'm perhaps uh, not remembering the, all the ways in which he doubtless qualified that claim. But um, uh, it's, um, it, I think, Neil Meehan's account, which I'll quote as a sort of last quote, was that Cruz O'Brien's politics were literary and his aesthetics political, so much that in his historical imagination, art produced action. Now, I put it to you, and this is the end of my little coda, that that is as romantic a vision of history and of historians as it's possible to get, certainly just as romantic as any nationalist myth-making. Thank you. Thank you.